This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Denver coffee shop remains in hot water after placing a sign out front that read happily gentrifying the neighborhood since 2014. Protests erupted after people in the historically black Five Points neighborhood caught wind of it. The owner of Ink Coffee has apologized. Earlier today, I spoke with the president of Denver City Council, Albus Brooks, who represents this part of the city. Councilman, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. You were actually singled out during the weekend protests. Demonstrators held posters that said Albus Brooks happily gentrifying the neighborhood since 2011. What message do you take from that? You know, first of all, you couldn't have a more uh, incredibly divisive sign at this time. And I think this speaks to it's a sign of a deeper reality that's happening in our community that's been happening for the last 20 years of gentrification. And our community is looking for answers and they're starting with their politicians. And so I understand the frustration. Obviously, gentrification and economics are much complicated than uh, one person or a local government. And so I think it was misguided, uh, but I understand the frustration. They are looking to their elected officials for answers. And what answers Mm -hmm. do you have for them? I think that, first of all, when we talk about gentrification, it's a 20 and 30 year process. Um, It's income inequality. It's, um, you know, 80205 was the highest gentrified zip code uh, in 2010, you know, according to Atlantic City's, you know, magazine. In Colorado, that is. So I think um, it, it's very complicated. And what I say is uh, it's going to take the private sector, it's going to take the community, and it's going to take uh, our local government working together with our state government because there's a lot of state policies that we need to start looking at and federal policies as well. Where would you start? I think I'd start, um, which what we've already been doing is micro economics, um, begin supporting local businesses. Obviously, we have done that on the economic side, but we also have, it's about housing. Uh, we, we institute the largest housing fund in Colorado's history in 2016. Um, and we need to do more. I, I've, I've been on record and saying we need to put $100 million more into this housing fund. And so it's going to take all of those stools to begin to, uh, legs on the stool to begin to, to change uh, what's going on in gentrification. But it's tough. It's a tough issue. Interesting. You talk about local business. Inc. is a, is a Colorado-based business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I say local, uh, I mean uh, Northeast Denver, uh, not a chain. You know, we know a lot of these coffee shops that are not a part of a, sh- a chain um, don't have the capital to get espresso machines. I mean, simple things like that. And so I think it's important that we support those businesses, not that we don't support other businesses that have chains, but it's important for us to preserve the character of the neighborhood that we support those folks who are from the neighborhood as well. If they can afford to stay there, um, I'll ask you more about displacement, which is really, yes, I think, the, yes. the, 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 that's the crux of the gentrification, crux. Yeah. displacement. I just want to note that Inc.'s founder, Keith Herbert, apologized. Okay. He first responded on Twitter, acknowledging the ad was in poor taste, then followed up saying he needs to, quote, better educate myself on gentrification. I'm embarrassed to say that I did not fully appreciate the very real and troubling issue of gentrification. I want to sincerely apologize. Uh, Albus Brooks, I understand that he also emailed you directly and you are asking him, again, the owner of Ink Coffee, for some very specific things. Like what? Yeah, so first of all, I understand the apology. 
and I appreciate him taking that step. However, um, this is such a deep-rooted issue. I believe it calls for reconciliation, which I've been attacked for, right? <laughs> um, but I think reconciliation needs to happen. And reconciliation to me is restoring defrauded parties, right? Uh, so it's really deeply understanding this issue. Having someone from the community take him through cultural competency, uh, understanding and training, making sure he is specifically hiring folks of color from the neighborhood. Uh, 80205 is, has the highest ex-offender uh, reentry population in the city. I think, and also trying to invest in social programs within Northeast Denver and some of our elementary schools. And so I tell that to every business that comes into to, uh, Northeast Denver is you can no longer be a business operating on your own. You have to be a part of the social fabric. You have to understand the history of the community. And while all of our energy is focused on ink, by the way, side note, a 13-year-old boy shot two other kids in Manuel High School's parking lot Indeed. on Thanksgiving. And no one's talking about that. So, so that, this is kind of my point is all of our energy is focused here um, and we're not seeing the community at large. So they shut down. Yay, we win. But do we win? <laughs> you know, have we invested in our local, you know, coffee shops here? Have we helped someone learn what went wrong in the first place? Or have we just returned, you know, hate with hate? Lisa Calderon of the Colorado Latino Forum helped organize the protests. She said, this is not about a sign. It is about people being pushed out of a community they lived in for years. And she has placed blame on city leaders. Quote, our political leaders have failed us and left us behind. So let's wrap up on this idea of displacement. What What exists for someone right now, today, if they are getting pushed out of Denver because it's too expensive? Yeah. So I want to be very clear on displacement. Um, Displacement is not in the home ownership category. It's in the rental category. Hmm. And someone cannot afford uh, what their land owner is jacking up the price with, right? And so that is something that we are working very hard on. Matter of fact, you know, our city council is working on a fund, um, a legal fund to help folks who have been evicted and displaced. Um, And that's a real issue. But again, we as government cannot solve that in its own. This has to be a community conversation. We need to know the individuals who are in these situations. We need to all be working together to find that. But I, I share Lisa's and I share everyone's concern with displacement and, and figuring out how we address that issue. Uh, the other issue is these, you know, these affordable housing units that have been deed restricted for 20 years are now coming off that deed restriction and going onto the market and will be sold. And what the city has done has moved into this first right of refusal. So every deed-restricted property that is now coming off the market, the city can purchase. And so that's one way that I think we're fighting that displacement issue in my district in a very real fashion. One last thing. Organizers from the protests said they would form a new coalition to fight gentrification Their goals include supporting future city council and mayoral candidates who will, quote, put a curb on gentrification. They've also called on the mayor and the council to get rid of the so-called urban camping ban. 
That was legislation you sponsored. And to ditch the I-70 project, a plan you've endorsed. Uh, How do you see those issues, if at all, relating to this conversation? Yeah, I think I think now what you're seeing is there are a lot of issues all over the city and folks are beginning to pile on in front of <laughs> this ink coffee deal, which was unfortunate um, because I think the owner and ink need to be held responsible for and, and why they put this out and their thinking and all that kind of stuff. But now we see all the other issues in the city kind of caked up upon that. Uh, which I see is unfortunate. Um, one, I think no one council person, no one mayor uh, can curb gentrification. It takes an entire community. I think two, I-70 is a 15-year project, uh, a state-issued project, a federal project uh, that is more complex than one individual. Uh, and so, I mean, these are f- folks who are frustrated with some things in the city, um, and unfortunately, They're using this as a platform to talk about it. Councilman, thanks for your time. Thank you. Denver City Council President Albus Brooks responding to the outrage over an ink coffee ad in the district he represents. That ad made light of gentrification. The U.S. is now the only country to reject the Paris Agreement to fight climate change. That's after Syria signed on earlier this month. President Trump announced last June that the U.S. would back out of the pact. As president, I can put no other consideration before the well-being of American citizens. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States, to the exclusive benefit of other countries. And yet, there was a very noticeable American presence at the U.N. climate conference in Germany this month. So what gives? Well, I'm joined by two Coloradans who were there. Coben Calhoun is with the Rocky Mountain Institute, an energy think tank in Colorado that envisions a low-carbon future. And Gillian Bowser is a research scientist at Colorado State University, and I'm glad to have both of you on the program. Uh, Gillian, this was the ninth time you've gone to this conference. What was your sense of the reception the U.S. got versus uh, others you've attended? Um, Thank you for having me. It was interesting. The U.S. government was there, um, and they were present in the negotiations. Um, To back out of the Paris Agreement is a little more complicated than... Um, a simple stepping away. Um, however, the mood was very upbeat, I think, for all the other nations because, as you mentioned, Syria and the country of Nicaragua signed in on the agreement. So every country, with the exception of the U.S., is now a member of the Paris Agreement. So I would say the mood was very upbeat and um, sort of pragmatic, moving forward towards implementing this agreement. Even without one of the biggest economies on earth, huh? Yeah, well, it's interesting that we we were there, but we weren't there, so to speak. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll talk more about what the U.S. presence uh, engaged in and was willing to participate in in a moment. But, Coben, uh, you were one of the primary authors of something called America's Pledge. And this was a commitment to follow the Paris Agreement by states, cities, businesses in this country Uh, After the president's announcement, I'll say Colorado signed the pledge, Denver, Aspen. uh, These participants are called non-federal actors. Is is that a euphemism for acting against the stated wishes of the administration? 
Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I, I think really what it is, uh, America's Pledge is is an effort to really start to quantify and, and be transparent both uh, to the domestic audience as well as uh, the international audience around the extent to which uh, Americans and the U.S. is still engaged and supportive of the Paris Agreement. Uh, and as you stated, this, this is really exhibited by uh, the mayors and governors and business leaders that uh, in, in the days and weeks after uh, the White House stated their intent to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, really reaffirmed their commitment to the Paris Agreement and to climate action. And so America's Pledge was really an initiative to begin to quantify, really for the first time, uh, some total how these, as as we call them, non-federal actors, have and are going to continue to lead the U.S., uh, given the void uh, at the federal level of climate leadership, on climate action. And, and so if all those states and cities and businesses move forward, and I'll say that that includes the economy of Cal- California, for instance, um, is the federal withdrawal all that meaningful? It is, uh, you know, and, and I think what we looked at and what we analyzed within the report is uh, in kind of in the current uh, analysis, about half of the U.S. economy is still in, still committed to the Paris Agreement and to climate action. Okay. Uh, but there is an important role for the federal government to to remain committed. Uh, and I think one of the key takeaways from the report is that while there is significant leadership and ambition and there's an opportunity for non-federal actors to do more, there still is a really important role uh, and need for re-engagement at the federal level on climate action. Uh, Gillian, one idea the administration has repeatedly raised is renegotiating the terms of the Paris Agreement. Um, is that a legitimate possibility? And did you get a sense perhaps that the administration's representatives in Germany were feeling out how receptive others were to that idea? Or was it more talk of complete withdrawal? Um, I think a, a little bit of both, and I'll, I'll speak as a civil society um, you know, observer of the uh-huh. Paris Agreement. What we heard a lot of is that the other countries are less interested in renegotiating the agreement and more interested in implementing what is on the table. There's still a lot of mechanisms that have to be negotiated that the countries are not as willing to reopen the negotiations, um, which would reopen lots of different pieces of negotiation. And there was a lot of uh, concern from the developing nations that the Paris Agreement was really led by small nations, small island states. And for them, the urgency of now is is at their doorstep, literally, as the sea levels rise and things are, are moving at a very rapid rate. So I think the general mood is to keep moving forward, and there's enough sort of movement room within the agreement to make terms that would perhaps be more um, favorable for the U.S. to return to the agreement. Let me say that the U.S. is in it for five years, essentially. I mean, it's committed at least to that, correct? Correct. Uh Uh-huh. You know, earlier this year, we spoke with Catherine Wilkinson. She edited a book that offered 100 ideas to combat global warming. And one of the areas cited was women's rights and educating girls around the world. Quoting here, educating girls is the single most important social and economic factor associated with a reduction in vulnerability to natural disasters. And in Germany, the official U.S. representatives signed off on something called the Gender Action Plan. So this seems to be uh, a chapter of progress from the Germany conference. What, What can that achieve, Gillian? That, that's just a great thing to bring up. You know, the Gender Action Plan is basically uh, an idea to make sure that we look at 
inclusive data um, across every action of the UN Apple Tree, uh, UN Apple Triple C. Sorry, the, U, the United States uh, Convention on Climate Change. The idea is that women not only need to be represented at all levels of the convention po- process, but also you need to have gender responsive climate policy so that women and girls and other vulnerable populations are accounted for in all processes. And one of the big things which for as a university representative there, you know, we sit on something called the Ringo, which is a research and independent non-governmental organization. They love their acronyms, don't they, at, at these conferences? Yeah, they're yeah. really fun. We have Ringos <laughs> and Bingos. Um, okay. And the Bingos are the business and the Ringos are the research. Um, so a wonderful UN speak. Um, but part of that fun is that it, it's important for capacity building, that women and girls are represented as part of the capacity building goals of the Paris Agreement. What does capacity building mean? I don't know what that means. That's a, a, a way of saying that every country within its borders wants to develop the capacity, whether it's scientific or technology, to address adapting to climate change within its own borders. Mm. So obviously as a research institution, how we educate women and girls, the entire population, to help address the adaptation challenges that like a small island nation now faces is huge. I mean, these are huge engineering, science, societal questions that have to be addressed. So the Gender Action Plan is trying to reaffirm that, that every piece of the way we need to make sure we have vulnerable populations recognized in the agreement, but also part of the solutions to climate change. And the U.S. essentially said yes to this. So I'm getting the sense that, in a way, uh, this country had its foot both on the brake pedal and the accelerator at this conference. Coben, do you think that's a the proper way to frame it? I would say they had their foot oh. pedal on neutral. Oh, I'm sorry. On neutral. That's what you can answer it too, but go ahead, Copen. No, I would agree. I, I think, you know, it was very much, you know, the there have been many public statements around kind of backing off of the Paris Agreement. We know that that, that will take many years and is more complicated than, you know, simply uh, backing out. But they're, they're st- they still were an engaged uh, participant in the discussions. And so I think um, there there is kind of an interesting um, dichotomy here in terms of how the U.S. Uh, continues to engage uh, in some of these formal discussions and dialogues in the coming years. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with two Coloradans who were at the recent climate conference in Germany. Coben Calhoun is with the Rocky Mountain Institute. It's the low-carbon think tank uh, in Colorado. Gillian Bowser is a research scientist specializing in sustainability at Colorado State University. And I I do want to talk about the idea of uh, people at the table who are not official government representatives. So um, businesses, for instance, you mentioned that that is... Um, certainly a presence at these conferences and in these discussions, um, Gillian. Uh, is is there some discussion that, like, Coca-Cola should be at the UN table? Or, yeah, I'm just throwing that out as any one of number of businesses, but that this isn't really just a gathering or a responsibility of governments. What do you say, Copen? 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a really interesting question and one that's becoming uh, a bit more uh, apparent in particular, you know, through efforts like America's Pledge and, and We Are Still In and, and others that really are showcasing the ability for businesses as well as others to really drive forward on, on climate action. I think, you know, while there is that opportunity, I, I think, at least within America's Pledge, the intent wasn't to necessarily create a, a formal seat at the table for uh, some of these non-federal actors, but more just to make sure that their voice was heard uh, and that their presence was felt in terms of uh, helping to drive increased ambition uh, and help shape and, uh, and influence the overall discussions that were being had uh, in terms of the formal discussions. Gillian, uh, how do you answer that question? And I just want to note, by the way, that it was held in Germany, this conference, but Fiji was the actual host. Uh, and I imagine Fiji has a whole bunch of uh, of its own issues to deal with in terms of climate change that differ from, say, Germany. Yeah, that's a great sort of segue. I mean, part of where Fiji came into the picture was introducing, which they called a Fijian um, tradition, called the Tainaloa Dialogues. And the Tainaloa word in Fiji was to talk about dialogues at the table where everyone brings a voice to the table. So one of the exciting developments out of this last conference were those dialogues, which have a set of questions that all nations need to address in a process leading up to the next COP24 in Poland. Like what? What would be a question a country asks itself? Well, the questions are, were set out by the Fijian president. Um, he did a, a, you know, a series of wonderful analogies, like we're all in the same canoe, um, okay. and everybody needs to paddle at the same rate. Um, the three questions that were posed to everyone is, where are we? Where do we want to go? And how do we want to get there? And the the... the the, the speech behind those questions was that for us to address a global issue, we need the entire globe engaged, which includes non-state actors, includes local communities, includes businesses, multinationals, etc. So part of the role of that dialogue is to bring a voice to a table. Now, that's different than a negotiation forum where it's nation-to-nation -nation negotiation. It's a dialogue that helps inform that negotiation. So should, should Walmart be sitting next to, you know, South Korea? No. Okay. <laughs> I think, I think part, so, and that's within the, the UN itself. There, that's where our fun acronyms, the Ringos and the Bingos and other what are called major groups, come in as civil society. The UN's history is based on civil society having a voice in the process. Now, what that voice means is do you help inform negotiation tables, do you help inform negotiation language? As the RINGO, Research Independent Group, does regularly, we help provide information on what researchers do to parties. The parties themselves, countries, will do the negotiation. I think what Fiji as a small country says is we all need to be at this table and to not pay attention to the smaller actors does not do justice to the need for everyone to move forward on climate. So it's a two-step two page. One is to have that discussion. The second is to inform the negotiations where the countries continue their own negotiation discussion. Coben, what was most exciting for you at this conference? We'll wrap it up there. We have about a minute. Uh, I think it was just really exciting to see the extent to which uh, the U.S. presence was felt. Uh, and that was present in terms of uh, this U.S. Climate Action Center that, that was funded and, and placed there, along with the, the senators, the governors, the mayors, uh, as well as students from many universities that were all present there uh, and kind of showcasing their ambition uh, and their support for both the Paris Agreement and for action on climate change. May you live in interesting times here. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you.
Coben Calhoun works for the Rocky Mountain Institute. It's the low-carbon think tank in Boulder. And Gillian Bowser is a research scientist at Colorado State University. And they were both in attendance at the UN Climate Change Conference in Germany earlier this month. When we come back, how has coming out of the closet transformed Olympic free skier Gus Kenworthy? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The countdown to the Winter Olympics in South Korea is on. And skier Gus Kenworthy hopes to medal again, but actually enjoy it this time. See, since the Games in Sochi, Kenworthy came out as gay. The first extreme sports star to do so. But back in 2014, he says he was so burdened by being in the closet, he didn't really get to appreciate his silver medal. Kenworthy is from Telluride, and he's on the line with me. Hi, Gus. Hey, how are you? I'm good. And I'm going to ask you about your decision to come out in a bit. But I want to say that a lot of people might remember you as the skier who rescued a family of stray dogs in Sochi. Uh, What has happened to those dogs? Yeah, so I was in Sochi at the last games with my ex-boyfriend and we were totally in the closet. But he stayed in Russia for about a month and brought back a bunch of dogs. Two of them were living with me in Denver and now they live with him in Vancouver and we're not together anymore. But they've got a pretty good gig up there. and then. The mother dog lives with my mom in Telluride, Colorado, and she likes her more than she likes any of her kids. (laughs) (laughs) Your boyfriend at the time uh, had this idea, as you say, to rescue the dogs. But at that time, no one knew that you had a boyfriend and you didn't say anything about him publicly. I can't imagine how awkward it must have been then to get all that attention. I just want to play this clip from Good Morning America. You gotten a lot of responses about your tweets? Uh, Yeah, a lot of girls like olympians and puppies which has been overwhelming but um a heartthrob skier with the heart of gold what was it like to get all that attention and kind of i don't know fake an interest in women and in this stereotype that people expected you to fit yeah i mean i i guess i had kind of already been trying to fit that stereotype anyway it kind of was all very shocking to me because then after the games all the questions were sort of loaded questions because anything that was about a celebrity crush or type of girl I liked, anything like that was just completely a lie. And I wasn't really like able to kind of like dodge questions or lie by omission. I was actually just lying. My boyfriend was there. He was like, yeah, like I'll do it. I'll stay here. I'll figure it out. And then suddenly I'm on the cover of People Magazine holding the dogs and he's in Russia staying in a crappy hotel trying to figure out how to actually bring them back. And I had never told anybody and I would have been coming out to my mom and I didn't think the appropriate way to come out to everyone in my life was when I'm getting caught off guard in an interview. So Mm. I just lied, but it kind of started to eat me up. Uh, What were you more afraid of? How the sports community would react to you or how your own family would react? Uh, Definitely the sports community. I I knew that my family was going to be really supportive, but even despite that, I was still scared to come out to them because I think that that just made it real in a way. It made it like out there and and everything. And I did not expect the industry to be supportive and and they ended up being great. They ended up being great. I'll ask you more about that in a bit. But in Sochi, you won silver in slope style. Sochi was the first Olympics to host that event. 
1-6-0 for Gus Kenworthy. That means Americans occupy gold, silver, and bronze. Can you describe just briefly what slope style is? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to explain slope style is that it's basically like an obstacle course. You start at the top of the mountain or the top of the run, and you make your way to the bottom, hitting a series of jumps and rails, and they're kind of all set up, scattered across the run, and you pick a line and try and get creative with the tricks that you're doing. And while you're doing it, you're getting judged on the technicality of the tricks that you're doing, amplitude, how big you're going on the jumps. And so you're kind of trying to come up with a run that has a lot of variety in terms of the tricks that you're doing, but also looks really smooth and effortless. I'd like to know how going into these games and into the qualifiers feels differently from, you know, what it felt like going into Sochi four years ago. I think that I feel a lot more pressure going into the Olympics this time around. Last time, I think any pressure I had was just put on myself. This time around, four years later, I have a medal from Sochi, and I have four X Games medals since the Olympics four years ago, and a bunch of different titles and accolades and came out as gay, and that kind of brought me a whole new set of media attention and Hmm. a different sort of followership. And so there's all these people that I want to do right by, and then coming into the games, I signed a ton of endorsement deals. And I think that in a way, it puts a little more pressure on you. You told us earlier about coming out of the closet, that the extreme sports community, and I don't want to assume that your fans reacted better than you thought they would. What was behind the fear? Why did you think the reaction would be so harsh? I mean, is it stuff that you've heard, you know, in the locker rooms or or what? Yeah, I mean, it's not even really like locker room sport. It's not a team sport, but just the language that people used, it's like you hear a lot of people using the word gay to associate with anything that's bad. Like the course is gay, the judging's gay. And then like people calling each other fags and skier fags. And so it was a lot of like language that was just really difficult for me to hear. And there was also just no representation. There wasn't anyone that had come out before me and I had been like, oh, well, they came out and it went well for them or didn't go well for them. It was like, I had no idea. Has that changed since you've come out? Do you think that people are more mindful of this? Do you, do you see yourself as a teacher? I don't know if I see myself as a teacher. I mean, I guess I hope I, I hope to lead by example. And I do think of myself as a role model because I think I sort of stepped up to that plate when I did come out so publicly. But um, I've seen a total shift in, in, in the way people talk. And I've been at so many events and people will be like, this is so lame. <laughs> and I'll be like, thank you for catching yourself or they'll say it and then right afterwards they'll be like sorry I didn't mean that and I'm like it's okay I, I get that it's ingrained and that people have become accustomed to saying this thing that they shouldn't be saying and it's not so easy to break a habit but I, I appreciate every time I see an effort because I feel like it shows an awareness and a willingness to change Now do you think you've paved the way for others to come out? I don't know of any big sort of public comings out in the extreme sports community, but maybe people have come up to you and told you privately or something like that. Uh, Yeah, I've had a lot of people come up and tell me privately, and I get messages like daily from people that have said that my story with ESPN or my coming out or even just being open in public on like my Instagram with photos of my boyfriend and like LGBT causes and not really shying away from it at all has made it easier for them And uh, I don't know, I think that anyone that watched my coming out story saw how kind of successful it was in that, like, I came out and I didn't lose sponsors, I didn't lose fans, I didn't lose friends. It was actually, like, a really amazing experience, and the following season was my best competitive season ever. So I hope that that would encourage anyone that's facing the same thing to be like, you know what, I can do this. It wasn't, like, 
this terrible, sad sob story or anything. It was a, a success story. Uh, but at least for now, you are sort of the gay extreme skier. Uh, is that a role that you get tired of? I mean, not really. I guess the one thing that gets maybe tiresome is the same interview questions over and over again. But uh-huh. you're doing great, by the way. Oh, well, that's um, very nice. <laughs> no, but I think like you, you, you kind of, it gets monotonous. But also I knew that that's what was going to happen when I stepped into the role. And it's a role that I'm very proud to be stepping into. So like whether or not I'll always be associated as the gay skier, it's like there are, are worse things that I could be associated as. I think that's like actually a great thing. That's a title that I'm proud to have is like the gay skier. The phone cut out there. You used the word monotonous. Uh, it can feel that way at times. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with skier Gus Kenworthy, who hails from Telluride ahead of the games in South Korea. And I, I just want to say, you're such a nice guy. I mean, just to, to hear about the, the your followers, how you admire them, and you, and you want to kind of live up to their expectations, even just the comment in passing there about uh, how this interview was going was a nice thing to reflect on. Are nice guys rare in, in this sport, or do you think you're uh, in good company? No, I, I, yeah, that's sweet. I think I'm in very good company. I think like some of my best friends are friends that I've made because of the sport and doing this, traveling the circuit, and I want my friends to succeed, and I truly believe that they want me to succeed, and you're kind of like rooting for each other, even though you obviously want what's best for yourself. And uh, wanting what is best for yourself would mean improving on a silver medal, you know, which is hard to do. What what do you think you will do differently if you do medal in South Korea? How do you think you'll experience that more fully or differently? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I want to think about that, (laughs) but I also don't want to get too ahead of myself. But I do think getting to go over there as an out athlete and just getting to be myself and not have to hide anything, not feel ashamed, I think will be amazing. And I think I'll feel a lot less burdened. And then if I'm able to perform that way and, and do get a medal and do get a podium, I think I'll just be able to appreciate it a lot more. What new tricks are you working on? Uh, in the half pipe, I just learned a, a right side double cork 1440, which I feel like is not going to sound like anything that makes any sense. Wait, but say, that, say that slowly one more time. It's a, a right side double cork 1440. Okay. So basically the long and short of it is that it's, it's in the half pipe. It's two flips. Right side just means that I'm spinning to the right as opposed to spinning to the left. And everyone kind of has a comfortable way of spinning, a natural way of spinning. And mine is to the left, so this is my unnatural way. And 1440 means it's four rotations, and the double cork means it's like two flips. So it's, I don't know, it sounds very technical. It kind of is, but... It sounds terrifying, actually. Yeah. I just learned it in Switzerland at a training camp, so was feeling pretty good about that. And I'm hoping to be able to put it in my runs. Yeah, you have here, and I think it'll help me a lot. Qualifying events coming up in Colorado for both half pipe and slope style. Uh, really quickly, South Korea, uh, where you hope to head, doesn't have a great record for LGBT rights. Um, Same sex marriage is illegal there. A gay soldier was given jail time for having consensual sex with another soldier. Uh, do you plan to speak out about gay rights when you're there? I want to speak out about gay rights whenever I'm anywhere. I mean, it's something that. I believe it, and I don't think that anyone should be burdened by the place that they were born. And I think that there are so many places that are so oppressive, and I don't necessarily know what I can do to help, but I, I am so happy to, to speak about my situation and try and raise awareness and speak out against injustices. 
Gus Kenworthy, thanks for being with us. <laughs> thanks very much. Appreciate it. He is a professional free skier who hopes to compete in the Winter Olympics in South Korea in February. You can see Kenworthy at qualifying events in Copper and Breckenridge in coming weeks. He took silver four years ago in Sochi. Since then, he's come out as gay and has become a vocal champion for gay rights. Soon, Amazon will announce where it'll build a second headquarters. Metro Denver is in the running. Our colleagues at KUOW Public Radio in Seattle are giving us a picture of what Amazon meant for their city. It's where the online retail giant started. Today, in their podcast, Primed, a look at the guilt that can come from holiday shopping online, not from a mom-and-pop store. Here are hosts Carolyn Adolph and Joshua McNichols. First, a little context. Guilt about where we shop actually isn't new. Before there was Amazon guilt, there was Walmart guilt. Back in the 1990s, a lot of people were complaining that Walmart was killing Main Street. Think vacant downtown storefronts and packed Walmart parking lots. Walmart, we sell for less every day. A lot of people who didn't like the situation went to Walmart anyway because they did like the lower prices. Yeah, except the shopping experience sucked. Especially on Black Friday. Thank you, Reg. Big sales and a stampede. Shoppers pushed and shoved their way through Black Friday today. The mad dash into a Walmart store knocked shoppers to the ground near Grand Rapids, Michigan. A 13-year-old girl helping a pregnant woman get up had to be taken away by ambulance. It's unbelievable that this is what we've come to expect on Black Friday. Yes, I know. And back in the 90s, because of stories like this one, Walmart was really struggling with its reputation. And Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, was watching and learning. Brad Stone is the author of a book about Amazon called The Everything Store. He says Bezos found an important lesson in the Walmart story. It it was threatening Main Street, but the experience wasn't all that good. I mean, there were low prices, but people criticized the quality of the merchandise. They criticized the, the chaotic experience in the parking lots and in the stores. These days, Amazon is worth way more money than Walmart. And yes, Amazon is known for having low prices, but they're known for other stuff too, like being obsessed with the customer experience and constantly inventing cool stuff. Brad Stone says that's intentional. So, you know, Amazon's philosophy is, you know, you can be big, but as long as you keep inventing and as long as you keep improving the customer experience, maybe you can escape the reputational challenges that have plagued big retailers across time. But Amazon didn't completely succeed in controlling its reputation. No, they didn't. We know they didn't because so many people told us that when they shop on Amazon, they feel guilty. Yeah, because they feel it might be doing some harm changing retail as we know it in a bad way. So let's look at that. Is it true that these big changes in retail are all Amazon's fault? You know, Sears? Yeah, of course I know Sears. Well, in the old days, you could get anything there. I mean, a chainsaw, an engagement ring. You could even buy a house at Sears. The stuff people bought from Sears basically helped settle the West. And all I wanted at Sears was a pair of 513s, dark blue jeans that I could wear to work. 
So, did you find them? No. What? <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I go to the Sears. It's in a suburb just north of Seattle. Oh, I know that Sears. People call it the secret Sears because it looks abandoned on the outside. Yeah, that's the one. And when I drove up, I was like the only car in the parking lot. Did you even want to go in at that point? Well, I was kind of excited to have the whole store to myself. <laughs> so I entered through the appliance section, and this group of salespeople were standing there looking at me like they hadn't seen a customer in hours. I felt bad walking past them to the men's clothing. But once I got to the Levi's, there was hardly anything on the shelves. They didn't have my size in any of the colors that I liked. So I left empty-handed. What a waste of time. I know, right? I know on my way back to the car, I honestly thought, next time, I'm going to Amazon. And a part of me felt like I should feel a little bit bad about that. That's the dilemma we often feel we're in. You know, we can settle for a crappy shopping experience, or we can buy on Amazon, and then salespeople lose their jobs. Yeah, it's our fault. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd love for it to be that simple, though, because then we could solve this problem just by making different personal choices. It turns out our personal choices don't add up to much. Online sales are only 8.5% of total retail sales in the U.S. That's according to the Census Bureau. 8.5%? I mean, what about that survey you mentioned earlier that said half of holiday shopping will happen online this year? Well, online spending does tick way up over the holidays. But if you look at what we're spending online throughout the whole year, it's still below 10% overall. A lot of people think, oh gosh, I, I feel like I buy so much on Amazon or on other sites. But it really hasn't amounted overall to that huge a share of what people are purchasing. That's Amanda Colson-Hurley, a contributing editor at CityLab. Okay, so Amazon isn't eating everybody's lunch. But they're taking a pretty big bite out of retail sales, right? Well, I mean, of course. When somebody eats 10% of your lunch every day, it's a big deal. <laughs> but a lot of companies are failing for different reasons. Look at Toys R Us. I don't want to grow up on Toys R Us. There may be a million toys in Toys R Us that kids can play with, but Target has a lot of toys too. And so does Walmart. America has a lot of big box stores. Some people say too many. And Toys R Us built up a lot of debt trying to compete. Now it's in bankruptcy court, and this is not Amazon's fault. What about Sears? Sears is in a lot of debt, and it's been posting huge losses, which is a bad combination. Okay, how about Walmart? Actually, Walmart's doing great. Store sales are up, and online sales are way up. This is a company that's acting like Amazon. But however they're doing, Amanda Coulson-Hurley of CityLab says some people just don't care about the fate of these stores. Sears is not a mom-and-pop shop, and, uh, you know, neither are the big box stores, and, and neither is Amazon. And so people feel this is not a local business anyway, so it sort of doesn't matter. Right. So the issues here are way bigger than where I decide to buy my jeans. Yeah. People should just know there's these larger structural underlying issues there. It goes beyond, you know, one individual's choices or just the aggregate of millions of individual consumer choices. I don't feel that people should necessarily feel guilty. Oh, that would be a relief. Not so fast, Joshua. There might still be a reason to feel guilty. All right. Mom and pop. I mean, we should probably mention here that Amazon does support one kind of small business. Businesses that sell stuff on Amazon. Yeah, half of Amazon's sales come from small independent sellers on a platform called Amazon Marketplace. Yeah, but what about Main Street? Mom-and-pop stores, 
they are definitely threatened by Amazon. Kay Redden works at Sonic Boom, a record store in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood. Sonic Boom carries some stuff that Amazon also sells, and some stuff it doesn't. Uh, a lot of DIY labels, a lot of bands that are just selling things at shows. Like, like what can you show me? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I've got... <laughs> I'm putting on the local band Golden Idols uh, with their 2016 album, Holy Smokes. I love that surf music still survives in Seattle. <laughs> I love that this shop survives in Seattle. This is great. So Sonic Boom offers you an experience that feels like a treasure hunt. And Amazon offers you algorithms. Amazon predicts things you like based on your search history based on what other people who've searched for similar things have bought. You mean when Amazon flashes stereo receivers at me because it knows I've been looking? Exactly. Amazon thinks it has you totally figured out. Algorithms. <laughs> but at a record store, humans can challenge you to break out of your predictable patterns. Very slowly sometimes if you need it. But like, if you want to get weirder and you want to go free jazz, we can get you there slowly. <laughs> Redden is tired of the excuses people use for shopping on Amazon. She believes there are still local places where you can buy most stuff. Maybe the problem, as you see it, is like there's not enough Amazon guilt in the world. Oh, definitely. I feel like you should definitely feel a little more guilty. So that's how Kay Redden thinks about this. The decision to shop local is a moral choice. But here's one more way to think about it. We heard from a lot of people on our Facebook page that their Amazon guilt is about shipping, all that fuel, all that packaging. So should you feel environmental Amazon guilt? There's kind of a surprising answer. Researchers at the University of California looked into this. They determined that when you compare driving to a store or buying something online, buying online is actually better for the environment. Except if you order the free two-day shipping. That time pressure means more trucks have to leave half empty, and that erases the environmental gains. And that's significant if you consider that half of Americans have an Amazon Prime account, which gets automatic two-day shipping. Other things that are bad? Returning stuff. Also, putting your cardboard box in the garbage. That is something to feel guilty about. <laughs> this is a huge conversation, and we want your thoughts. Join in on our primed Facebook page. There's a lot to think about here. So what do we think? Our big conclusion coming right up. When you buy on Amazon, you can get exactly what you need. Whatever that is. Rose-flavored Turkish delight. Albanese brand gummy bears. Hot sauce. Underpants. Biore Sarasara UV aqua-rich watery essence sunscreen. A pink adult men's onesie for a Christmas story costume. And you can get it cheap and fast. Admit it. Most of the time, that's what you want. And if you're shopping for the holidays, that's probably exactly what you want. So why feel guilty about that? Here's one reason. It's only stuff. A lot of what a record store like Sonic Boom has to offer goes way beyond stuff. Amazon is just selling music. 
Sonic Boom adds value. It sells music that you can't get online, at least in vinyl. And it's an experience. That's a huge reason to go to the store. Your world expands. You get surprises. Instead of searching for something you already kind of found online, you find something new. And you can meet people who are discovering the same things you are. These are experiences that add up to a richer life. And if you're not taking advantage of those experiences, maybe you should feel guilty. Not because you're single-handedly destroying retail, but because you're missing out. From Seattle, I'm Carolyn Adolph. And I'm Joshua McNichols. Thanks for listening. They are the hosts of Primed, What Happens When Amazon Comes to Your Town. The podcast comes to us from KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. And you can join the conversation on the Primed Facebook page. We'd love to see your questions about Denver's bid for HQ2. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.